Namo tassa bhagavato rato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rato sama sambuddhasa Buddhang namang sangang namasami So tonight this is the commemoration uh, of the life and example of Ajahn Chah who passed away on January 16th, 1993, three, two, two, yeah. and uh, so now of course he this is now, you know, 12, 13 years later, so already there's a lot of literature, but there's also a lot of uh, kind of uh, stories and anecdotes and, uh, and, and uh, varying images and perceptions of this person. People seem to have quite different views of what Ajahn Chah was about. And some people say, oh, he's really, the main thing was he's really, really uh, strict on the vinya, on the discipline. He's really strong on vinya, really sharp. And other people say, oh, you know, the main thing about Ajahn Chah is he was so flexible. He's adaptable in his vinya. See when was the time to kind of just uh, soften it or, uh, you know, let the standards be slightly looser. Others say, well, the main thing about Ajahn Chah was so much loving kindness, so kind of warm hearted. And others would say, the thing about Ajahn Chah is really, you know, really stern, real, real tiger, you know, like to really torture people, you know, put, really push people's buttons and, and uh, give them challenges, you know, you've got to sit with pain and discomfort and so on. Other people would say, oh, you know, the thing about Ajahn Chah is really a lot of, lot of samadhi, a lot of samadhi power. Other people would say, oh, the thing about Ajahn Chah was he never really talked much about samadhi. It was mostly just discrimination and discernment. Yeah. And some people would say, oh, Ajahn Chah's thing was just poor D, good enough. You know, just let things be okay, not, not exceptionally high standards, just kind of reasonable okay. That was the main thing about Ajahn Chah. Oh, they say, oh, they think <laughs> so the, I think the, what one seems to get the impression of is people would take the bits, you know, particular facets that really met their needs or inspired them, and they remember that bit. I, I got a feeling Ajahn Chah was probably a lot, lot of things, many things, and. Uh, the only person who didn't have an idea of what Ajahn Chah was, was Ajahn Chah. <laughs> yeah. oh, all the bits fitted. All the bits fitted. And I think this, this to me is, is uh, something to, to remember. You know, when one looks at, if you like, Acharya Nusati, recollection of a teacher, an exemplar. It's a sort of... Uh, the, uh, we all have a lot of different qualities, um, ambivalences, ambiguities, and this is someone where all the different qualities seem to fit together, uh, uh, because he wasn't really hanging on to any of them. Hmm. My my experience, Vajan Shah was really quite brief, only for about a, a month or so, month, with him in, mostly in England, saw him briefly in Thailand. At uh, that time, he was already pretty much unconscious with his illness. Um, but one of the things that, so, so, you know, my perceptions are quite limited. So you just talk an incredible amount, go on six hours, no problem, um, you know, up through the night, real live wire. And... Uh, enormous sense of playfulness and humour 
And mercy is this incredible quality of ease and, and, and enjoyment. You seem to just enjoy being. Not there was anything special about what we were doing, just being in this, mostly this quite crowded little vihara in London. And you might very well uh, have considered that you normally lived in a, uh, what was at that time quite a, a rural and um, undeveloped area, northeast Thailand, people getting water out of, out of the wells, um, no electricity in the what, um, pretty rough food, walking barefoot to the village for, for um, sticky rice every day, and mostly around is just people farming uh, paddy fields with water buffalo and chickens, and that's the way it's been for hundreds of years, and it's like that. And you come to, to London, you might, where it's suddenly everything's jammed together, these little boxes, houses, there's traffic, lights, flashing things uh, everywhere, and you're just squashed in this tiny little house. You might thought he, he might have been a bit of culture shock, and he would have felt ill at ease. Uh, but the striking thing was he seemed incredibly much at ease with everything, and actually uh, having a kind of impish delight in all of it. How how kind of absurd he found it all. <laughs> interested but not taken in uh, uh, any play kind of tease people and wind people up and and, uh, and take an interest in things and they, so they asked him what do, what do you you know when you see London you see these big skyscrapers and <coughs> roads and you know what do you think of that what do you see when you see that he says oh I see it all falling down <laughs> It's true. Got this uh, uh, ability to just kind of deflate, you know. The so the it's a kind of uh, it's a sense in which you can get hyped up or proliferate. And you could just kind of pop, pop the bubble, pop uh, uh, the bubble of that. Uh, and there was this uh, the Anagarika who who did this marvelous pastel drawing, which now hangs in the in the main house at Chithurst, which is, uh, you know, people liked it so much they've made many copies of it and send it all round to various monasteries. So it's it's a very, um, I think many people find it very beautiful and um, st- striking piece of work. And this Anagarika kind of worked on this thing for you know, week after week after week after week after week after week after and every time he'd do it and it looked great and he said no no and he'd kind of fiddle away and he'd take a bit out and he'd do some fun little detail you know the hands weren't quite right or you know and he'd just fiddle and fiddle and fiddle and one day he did it and then he rubbed the whole thing out and started all over again so he put this immense amount of this kind of real meticulous effort into it and uh so the Najin Shah came to England and, and uh, they took him to the top of the Vihara in Hampstead where the Anagarika was doing this, had nearly finished this portrait. And he said, well, you know, what do you think of that, Lumpur? He looked at it, yeah. yeah. I bet if I scribbled all over it, you'd be upset. <laughs> So what's that? Is that it's true? <laughs> it's always kind of pointing at what the mind uh, creates or makes or hangs on to or wants to make or wants to hang on to and the, <coughs> the tensions and the um, potential suffering we can make out of what we fashion and create in our minds. And because uh, of that, um, he was quite easy at, quite easy at, at uh, just kind of breaking up these creations seemed to be his, his major skill. And then he could create creations in a playful way, but he didn't really hang on to them.
at that time, Ajahn Sumedha was just uh, starting out in England, so a lot of his his teachings were very much carrying on what he what he'd learnt or what he'd been inspired with by Ajahn Chah. And his main things were he taught almost continually and uh, repeatedly. You know, the way Ajahn Sumedha when he picks up a theme, he just goes on and he brings it back. He brings it back. He just does that, you know, for months, sometimes years on end. He really, you know, it's been thoroughly and well pressed into your, your mind. And it's not, it's not a, a complex teaching. It's always a simple thing. It just gets firmly placed back and back and back and just re- applied to different situations. And the thing that he used then was, was um, two things. One, a Nietzsche or impermanence and letting go. And that was it. There was no... Um, other meditation than that you just sat there and you might occasionally you might sort of say something like oh yeah take a few breaths <laughs> you know now mostly it was just you know just you sit there and then whatever's going on in your mind you just contemplate the change thoughts images impressions moods whatever's in your mind the residues the anguish the joys the proliferations the ideas the just let it let it be there, but uh, keep this sense of of contemplating it as changing. And you can see that with that, there was this something that was extremely workable, because you can apply that more or less to any any situation, whether you're meditating or not meditating, you know, if you like, whether you're in formal practice or not. And um, it's trying to bring you always back to a particular. Uh, place in the mind. It's, it's a wisdom teaching. Not that it's extremely complex or, or erudite, but it's a, it's a teaching about discernment. Say, so this is the creations. Um, this is the you know the good, the bad, the fascinating, the delightful, the terrible, the whatever it is. There's all this, and then there's the watching of it. There's the contents of the mind, and there's the ability to just be present with that and let go of it. You know, there's not hang on to it and I think this was certainly a teaching that Ajahn Chah had given you know, at least at one stage and you can see that on that uh, BBC documentary when he's talking about letting go, Ploy Wang and uh, so the interviewer asks him you know, what, what, is the, what is the nature, what is the heart of Buddhist practice and he says Wang Ploy Wang, which is empty, let it be empty. So the interviewer says, oh, what does that mean? He says, Wang, <laughs> there you go. He says, oh, and he goes, well, and how do you do that? And he, he just sits and goes, Wang, Ploy Wang, <laughs> just let it go. It's just like that. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it's very simple. You know, you just wouldn't, kind of make anything more of it, but it's, it's that kind of just living on that edge, you just whatever is happening, you just all you have to do is just let go of it. Yeah. And this sort of thing is like a, a kind of a razor or a knife blade panya that just cuts through the whatever, you know. And uh, this seemed to be the at least the, my impression and certainly the main themes that I just made it was teaching at that time uh, of, of what he'd drawn benefit from most in Ajahn Chah mm-hmm. so it's kind of coming out of the content of the mind and I think this is, uh, this is, the, this is the Panya this discernment extremely valuable uh, it may be that he taught this more for Westerners and he taught other things to Thais, I don't, don't know. Partly because the Westerners, Ajahn Chah was one of the few uh, Thai monks who actually had Western disciples. So he actually got to understand the way that the, the minds worked and extremely complicated by comparison with the, uh, the, the Thai um, thinking, you know, and not ties don't. At least at that time, is 
people of this particular region that Ajahn lived in were not, not into great ideas, they didn't have televisions, um, you know, they're just basically fairly simple farming folk, didn't have complex thought patterns. And then he'd meet uh, Westerners who'd got, you know, MAs and degrees and, you know, contemplating the nature of ultimate reality or is Prajnaparamita the same as this or that? And then they'd get extremely complex considerations about how their life should be or what they should use with Pasana and how much Samadhi they needed and whether it's better to be in this culture or go to your own culture, whether you should be a monk or a you know, and how long for, and what kind of food, and what's the best diet, and how much yoga, and it's extremely, uh, got a lot of content, you know. So then they try to, to get some samadhi together, and just uh, the mind just can't, can't process, because it's just so clogged, and it can't kind of, you know, simplify and just remain one-pointed. It's a mind that's never learnt to be one-pointed, it's delighted in not being one-pointed, <laughs> being eclectic, and... Uh, um, wide-ranging is, is the Western typical, I'd say, obviously not for everybody, the typical Western mind. So Ajahn Chara seems to have had this kind of teaching, just the extreme simplicity and a real sense of just whatever it is, just let go of it. There's <laughs> nothing much you can say about that. You, <laughs> is, it, is that... Uh, you know, is that Christian or Buddhist? Or he say, just let go, whatever it is. Um, and uh, he wouldn't be intimidated by scriptures or or other things like that. He'd just say, this is what you do. Um, and uh, but then there's a tremendous kind of sense of of holding it, determining it, determining it, determining it. So that was another um, thing one felt about Ajahn Chah is, is great. It could be uh, playful and easeful, but there's immense strength. Not a hard strength, but strength of completely rooted in what he was and what he knew. Determination. And uh, when one looks at uh, some of the uh, stories of his own life, imagine Jayasara put together, you can recognize this man had a lot of, a lot of bottle. <laughs> You know, he really determined, like, uh, you know, setting up his, his mosquito net umbrella across a tiger's path just to see what fear felt like. Um, you know, sitting in a cemetery, a charnel ground, and tires are extremely conscious of ghosts and spirits, so this was a major challenge. It's just putting himself in, just determining not to move. You know, you know, the mind would just go into spasms and paroxysms of fear and collapse. You just stay there with it, hold it, and that kind of determination. And very much the main um, theme, or certainly a main theme that was brought to my mind uh, was this theme of, of the whole monastery was built on determination. You just stick it out. Uh, through the heat and the disease and the poor conditions, you just, which are not great for kind of, uh, you know, feeling good and feeling buoyant. Generally, it's hot, sweaty, um, food is coarse, uh, you get sick at that time, you get sick quite a bit. There's often quite a few people milling around, so you're some kind of um, ceremony or big do for several hours of the day when there's lots of people there and they're going through some incredibly excruciatingly slow chanting and you're sweating and your feet, you're up on your toes and you're going to go through this thing hour after hour after This is not the kind of situation anybody could imagine being conducive to tranquility. But <laughs> it was always conducive to, to just determination. Uh, and the uh, Thai phrase or tone, which means endure, patiently endure, this kind of mainstay of the teaching. That you just, whatever's going on, physical, mental, emotional, just that's that, and you just let it boil away, and you just hold hold your ground. Uh, this is a kind of um, uh, you say to people who wanted to come to Wat Pa Pong and check it out and. 
the spiritual seekers is is it going to be the right this and is it going to be the right that and will it be have enough time to sit and you know so many hours of seclusion and could I have special diets and so forth and he'd say did you come here to die <laughs> that's, that's what we do here we just come here and die <laughs> are you ready for that you know don't bother if you're not so that it meant kind of actually the, the mind could be driven into states uh, where all its all its creations would be you know fiendish or distressed and you just stay there with it until it gives up and then there's this kind of sense of the release from the creations uh, of the mind that seemed to be a kind of you know the model that the teaching was held in and uh, I think this is very important to bear in mind actually this is something that you know it straddles the cultures I think this is what makes makes Asian child teaching so readily available is we can all get that, we can all understand that. We don't really like it, but we know what that means and what, what that would be like. You know, so you think, well, I don't know if I can do it. Um, so, you know, whether you can do it or not. But then another big feature was a sense of a uh, group or community. And again, this was something quite uh, distinctive maybe about Ajahn Chah as a forest monk. A lot of the forest monks, you know, they, they would basically set up a monastery where you, you have your own kuti and you stay in your kuti most of the time, your little hut. And there's no hardly any meetings. You, know, you may come over and have a cup of tea, you know, there's a tea, a tea kuti. You go and have your tea or your cocoa or whatever it is and you hang out for a while. Or you might go and round the Ajahn's kuti in the evening and massage him, give him a massage with a few other monks and have a chat. This is, these are the kind of main things. And other than that, nothing. You know, might be a bit of sweeping and bindabad going arms around. So a lot of the time you're in solitude on your own. Um, and um, that wasn't the case at uh, Wat Bapong. Ajahn Chah actually had people being together, working together, um, going to uh, festivals, village festivals, where they're just kind of shooting off sky rockets and making all kinds of a hullabaloo, and you know, the monks have to go there and sit there and listen to all this stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, or just all, all night sitting as a group, in which the occasion would be, you maybe talk for four hours of that at least. So you're sitting there on a concrete floor and you can't get out and you can't you know, do your meditation bit and, uh, and you sit there. And he sort of know, he kind of wind people up, you ramble, tell the, same, tell the same story two or three times over drift off, get back to the point, give another bit, you know, just kind of rambling, sometimes not very purposeful. It's just basically, you know, creating a situation for endurance. And, uh, and it always be to that particular um, aim, point, to the mind gives up. And it's kind of held in there by the power of the group. Yeah. And I remember somebody saying there, was a, there used to be a clock, a clock in the sala, so you could, the idea was you're all really there with the Dhamma, you know, and uh, you, weren't, you, weren't, you weren't interested in the time, you were so absorbed in Dhamma, you weren't interested in the time, you know. But uh, there was an occasion, somebody got a flashlight and there was this kind of little flashlight beam come out. <laughs> Which is a nice shot onto the clock to see how Ajahn Chah was giving his talk. Obviously, he'd been going on for two or three hours. And so he thought, oh God, how was this going on for? What time did he flash the light on? And everybody groaned because they knew once, once that had happened, Ajahn Chah was going to go on for another three hours. (laughs) 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 
So the sense of patience, you know. Till you Ajahn Sumedho told me at the time, uh, occasionally when he was chanting, going to chant the Patimokha, so he'd always you meet for this, this recitation, and then the idea would be that Ajahn Chah would be sitting there, and then you bow, and you get on your seat, and then you chant, and it goes on for about 50 minutes, and then your business finished. So he started this kind of like six, six in the evening, when Ajahn Sumedho got onto the seat, and there was a visiting monk there, so, before he started chanting, Ajahn Chah started talking to this visiting monk about, you know, how things were, how things were going, what's happening in his village, did he know so-and-so, what the weather was like, had he ever been there, the time was six o'clock, seven o'clock, he kept going, eight o'clock, he talked about mangoes, the chickens, buffaloes, Ten o'clock, eleven o'clock. And they just made a sitting there, been sitting there on this seat, ready to go for four hours, five hours. Yeah. Three o'clock in the morning, and she says, "Hey, Samedo, what about chanting the Puddy Mook?" <laughs> so nine hours <laughs> sitting there. With nothing going on of any particular significance, it wasn't a high, profound, dumber rap, it was just babble, you know, just chit chat. The whole point of being, you know, you create a thing where it's a very, very simple and uh, pragmatic kind of teaching. And it's held by the the sense of you, you know, once you've seen that bit about, you know, there's there's the mental content and there's the knowing of it. You just hold to that. Then it's really the whole point is just to keep checking out what what can you, you know, what you, what are you going to follow? You're going to follow the restlessness or the the justifications or the um, this shouldn't happen to me or the how dare they or the what I really need is or you know just and the point being if you can 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 be encouraged and held in that, that the mind begins to empty out, let go, and you're left with a kind of sense of openness, emptiness, one. The mind settles down. <coughs> Hasn't got any word, doesn't, it's given up in a way. I think this is a helpful thing to, to just bear in mind the power of just something very simple like that, just sheer determination. But it's determination that's not about you know, getting anywhere, just about being where you are and staying at that edge, that, that edge of discernment, of just let go of that. Mm-hmm. You can do it. We know we can do it for a, a minute. Can you do it for nine hours? Mm-hmm. Then you just build up that, that strength. And that's, if you like, a kind of samadhi power in its own right. It's a strengthening and a consolidation. You can investigate, you know, how a hindrance works, how the, how the, the energies work, how the voices of the mind and how believable they are, and the pictures they come up with and the scenarios they present. Wow, well, it's like that. So, particularly when one is living in a group situation, then as um, you know, one has less control over it. So you can't really determine what you're going to fashion, what feelings you're going to have, which you can more if you get skilled at it. You're on your own. You can sort of start to home in and build up a particular quality of perceptual realm through meditation. When you're in a mixed thing, you're working together um, and you can't, you can't do that, you've got to be with other people and that was another big thing just uh, working, being with other people uh, the main point being that uh, you know w- 
hindrances are not purely something you deal with internally that is in, in the, sitting there with your eyes closed there's things that are happening kilesas, defilements um, happening through external contact and uh, the uh, point being that, that sometimes you can use meditation in a way of almost keeping out of particular places where, you, where you're touchy you know, where your buttons get pushed or you find a place where actually buttons aren't going to get pushed or some stuff just lies dormant and you think you don't have any because right now nobody's pushing your buttons so you haven't got any ill will right, because nobody's winding me up <laughs> but uh, then uh, in, a, in a no control situation soon you can't do that anymore you're very much up for grabs so it means your stuff keeps your stuff keeps flying up, and the most, you know, irritating thing is other people, because <laughs> they're the things that most most affect us, and that we most are affected by other people. And what I've noticed is everybody's different from me. There's not a single other person who sees things exactly my way. I don't know if you found this. <laughs> I, isn't it like that? So, so what the hell is he going on about? Why is she so interested in that? What a stupid thing to be thinking of. You know, I don't know. It's weird people. And uh, so you, you, you get this kind of sense of that. And sometimes it's, it can be quite irritating. You see other people's mannerisms or habits. So it, it kind of, you then, you're using that sense of the contemplating what comes up in your mind in in the real you might say real life on this level and that, that very much using that kind of frame of reference um, you know, that perspective on earthy practice I remember something that Ajahn Menindo brought to mind. He, he had this, he still does have this big problem with his knees because he had an accident when he was a young man on a motorbike. So his knees are all wrecked. And then you're sitting in, uh, trying to sit cross-legged on a concrete floor. His knees pretty soon gave, gave up. So they had to ferry him down to Bangkok to the hospital. And so he's in hospital in Bangkok his knees, you know, having operations on his knees and he was getting in a real state about would he ever be able to sit he couldn't sit, could he sit meditation you know, was he ever be able to sit meditation again and why was this happening to him and, and Ajahn Chah always make a point of visiting any of the, the monks who were in hospital and come and see him and when he saw when he when Menindo saw him, he immediately got his, oh, it's something to complain to, and he's going on, my knees, why, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be like this, it shouldn't be like this, it shouldn't be this way. Ajahn Chah looked at him and said, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. <laughs> that was it, you know. You can see how that, you know, it wasn't, and yet, is that is that kind or not? Yeah. As a dumber practitioner, it's just saying, you know, wake up. You know, this is this is real life. You know, there's no there's nobody's got a, a manual. Or, no, there's no script here that you get handed about how it's going to be. It's like this. Yeah, and you can't start saying how it's going to be all you can your main point your only point in Dhamma practice is not is can you you know instead of trying to make the world fit your mind can you get your mind to let go of the world and how deep does that go you know can we let go of you know um, material possessions can we let go of mind states can we get let go of pain can we even let go of the body's um, disease and death where you just, it's like that and you don't create anything around it and that was the kind of um, 
commitment and determination that seemed to be a mainstay of what he did in his practice. And, um, you know, challenging, and though that may seem, and there are many more uh, challenging things than those anecdotes. Um, the, uh, well, the sense of the inspiration came because the, it's something you can immediately get the point of. And it's simple, it's discernment. And then you look at someone who's done it, and this person is happy. If they're easy, they haven't got any, they don't react, they're not edgy, they're not gripped, they're not tight, they're loose, easy. You've got a living example of this is. The result, when you've let go, it's not you become desiccated, dried up old um, corpse, you know, made out of dust. You're actually warm, bright, humorous being with a lot of en- tremendous amount of energy, tremendous amount of agility, and right on the on the spot with people. I think for myself, the the thing that um, it struck me most, perhaps bright, most brightly, in all of this was uh, the enjoyment. He seemed to be someone who was just bubbling with enjoyment, and it wasn't enjoyment because some, something so wonderful was happening. But enjoyment, just that the uh, being present, just that the in, like enjoying the quality of the practice, enjoying the agility, enjoying enjoying the skill of the practice, um, just alive with it, having fun with it. A mind that was uh, used to knew its strength, knew how to release and uh, therefore had this tremendous amount of, of um, room to work in. There was nothing, nothing holding it in. And so this enjoyment. Because, it, and this I think is, is something to always you know, bear in mind, as well as the determination and the letting go, the... Uh, Recognizing the tendency for us to get um, take things ideologically, so determination becomes an ideology. You know, where you've got to be determined, you've got to be this, that, and the other, and rather than something that you're using to to for a purpose, to that purpose of release. So you can end up being super strict as a kind of something you hold on to. <clears throat> so as an example of this, was, was, uh, they always used to, uh, Tudong monks used to smoke. They get these old kind of village cheroots they'd have, and it'd be basically a way of dealing with pain and disease. Where you, you know, if you came across a village, they'd give you some cigarettes and you could smoke. 
and uh, a lot of the time you have malaria or toothache or something and having a smoke would help to ease some of the pain of that it was just enjoyed it so it was quite a big habit for people to smoke uh, you know, rough cigarettes rough uh, backy and uh, so Ajahn Chah one time he, he, he walked by Paul and he said okay we've got to cut this this is defiled this stuff you know you know, smoking is defiled it, it's addictive it's attachment it's not worthy of a son we've got to cut this out right from now on as we no more smoking in this monastery right I said, okay that was it the word was down you know so really all the back he out gone and then you know a few weeks later, people notice these little wisps of smoke coming imagine Charles Cootie <laughs> He's sitting there with a crafty cigarette. <laughs> when he came to England, this Yannick Garrick, who did the portrait, was also a very heavy smoker. He tried, he tried to stop smoking, but he was so utterly unlivable with when he stopped smoking that Andrew Smith urged him to, to, to take up smoking again. <laughs> he was so black without it. So he used to roll up old Hoban and stuff like that. So when, when Ajahn Chah and his Angarian got together, they'd sit there and they'd roll up together. Then Chah would have a cigarette in one hand and a cigarette in the other hand. He'd be smoking away. Oh, this is delight. <laughs> so he was, and he didn't, he didn't mind, you know. He didn't care if he knew about it. But it's, uh, so it wasn't an ideological determination, it's just seeing, you know, where, where, having that power, and then where do you need to apply it, you know, where do you need to apply it to where you're really hang, hanging on, and uh, often you, you can, you start off with you hanging on to things, and you can start to hang on to your renunciation, as, you know, I'm super strict, and so forth, you know, your sense of being determined, so there's always that, you cut, and then you start cutting that which cuts, and it's, it's empty. Um, so there's extreme, in a way, there's extreme playfulness that comes out of that, the ability to really turn the heat on and tighten up and then to just let it all fall apart, um, which was what Bob Pong was like. Yeah. Apparently sometimes it would be, you know, suddenly it would be group practice all day, every day. You, know, you weren't allowed to leave the sala, you're sitting there, and the mosquitoes and the heat you know, and then Ajahn Chah, you could only sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, and there was no options, and that would go on all night. And it meant maybe that would be like that for the whole Vasa, three months, every day, all night, you know. And so it'd be, you know, tight, woof. And then, boom, you know, three months, nothing. Everything just loose. And uh, people not meditating, people not being strict, people kicked back, you know. And people think, this is terrible, the place is going to the dogs, it shouldn't be this way, you know, dare they, and the monks are in there. in charge to say, oh, it'll change. It'll change. So that, that uh, determination, but really the determination eventually comes on the the determination is one of discernment of, and determination on release rather than on convention. You use the determination on conventional reality and behavior and, and ethics and so forth to build that up and then the, then the determination moves on to discernment, you know, to, to hold the edge of letting go and then the determination moves on to release, determine release. What is it that you need to, you can't let go of, you know, in order to find where your, your uh, clinging is and then to release that. And the results seem to be very spacious and in, uh, enjoyable um, presence, whatever else. They had no particular ideology wasn't trying to sustain a big picture 
So this means you can always just be very intimate and direct with you, you know, individually, and uh, char- very charming and engaging, draw you out. It's fun. Mm. Make fun of things, make fun of himself. Determination for release, for letting go. There's a story of Jack, Jack Cornfields when he, Jack was getting, when he was a monk for a while with Ajahn Charlie, and then uh, he'd start to get a bit upset because Ajahn Charlie would just be talking to people, maybe, you know, from nine in the morning till midnight, just talking, receiving guests, talking, 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 talking. And um, all kinds of people, so there's always this going on and and then chanting, and then work. So maybe there wasn't as much emphasis or time for the full practice that we take to be so so highly and regard as the, you know, this is it. So Jack was getting a bit steamed up about all this. When he went to see Ajahn Chah, he started complaining, you know, cooties are lousy, there's termites in the cooties, we have to you crawled over by ants and it's hot and and then you don't really get enough time to be on your own, you can't really get into samadhi practice and then you've got to go out and work and what's the point when he's boring chanting every day, you know, an hour or so of chanting in Thai and then this stuff and then we go bind above my feet hurt and you <laughs> you got these pointless arms rounds and so forth and so forth. And then he started in you know, Asian Chai you just seem to kind of, you know, you smoke and you laugh and you fool around and you know uh, what kind of teacher are you? <laughs> and so Ajahn Charles said, oh, I just laughed and said, oh you're good, you're good. <laughs> and he said, you, you're look, trying to find the Buddha somewhere out here, you, you won't find it. The only place you're going to find the Buddha is in your own mind, you're not going to find him looking at me. You want something something you can hang on to, the only thing you can know is in you, is your own release. Mm. So where's that kind of, very much just whatever one is building up, you know, to understand that, to know that, and to know, you know, this can be dropped, this can be released, that's, that's it. <coughs> So there's a lot of flexibility there, really, around such a simple and uh, firm um, line. I find myself that uh, this kind of uh, teaching is useful because my mind is a... a, a, create extreme complexities and uh, being in a particular role in which I find myself there's a lot of opportunity when one is you know receiving a lot of input um, from management of a monastery and from five or six monasteries in Britain and from people coming and then people's individual problems and plans and arrangements for the future and things that could go wrong, and things that should be done, and things that aren't working very well, and people are not happy with this. And you so your mind just is kind of buzzing with all this stuff, and you get, very, you get a sense of worry, you know, which is probably my most basic residual hindrance. It's just a sense of just never really relaxed, always kind of half ready, alert, half ready to think, plan, conceive, Oh, you know, so that's kind of edgy state. Um, so then that that uh, sense of of letting go, you know, <clears throat> Zajin Chah, he didn't have five or he's like a hundred or so monasteries <laughs> and lots of things, and just but always the uh, let the monastery 
fall apart. You know, let people leave, let it fall apart, let it not work, um, have no future. Um, so that these uh, time when uh, Ajahn Sumedha brought some of these English, a lot of English people, Ajahn Chah disciples from England over to Thailand to Wat Bapong to see the big, big monastery, the crack monastery, you know. And at this time, there was these um, evangelical Christians were doing missionary tours around the monasteries, and they'd managed to to convince a couple of the, the nuns that, that uh, Christianity was where it was at, you know, evangelical Christianity. So these nuns were then going around in Wat Bapong trying to, you know, turn everybody over to Christianity from Buddhism, you know. Persian Shah was just fine. <laughs> <laughs> that so <laughs> you know let go of the Buddha and Buddhism so when this um, this party of English people came you know to see the, the big gung-ho Buddhist monastery they find it's really trying to teach them born again Christianity <laughs> so because uh, I think one of the nuns was a, West, was a Western woman so she was the, one of the main translators and there she was Telling about you know, good Christianity was compared with this place. He said, Well, they've come over to Thailand to here. So Ajahn Sumedho went to Ajahn Chah and said, Look, you know, this is what's happening, you know. And they're saying that we come over, these people are coming over with faith in the Buddha, and they come to a Buddhist monastery, and these people are saying Christianity's better. And Ajahn Chah said, Maybe they're right. <laughs> So you can even let, let, let that one go and, uh, you know, you're not holding it together. So that people would come, there'd be waves when people would come and be inspired and people would leave for periods of time, the place would fall apart, it would have a ghost town, fill up again, and, um, and so on. <clears throat> wasn't trying to hold that one. And even kind of personal... Um, sense of being somebody, some big deal, wasn't what he was about. There's another occasion when um, I think Ajahn Sumedho was, was it, when he was living there, and he, uh, the the uh, American ambassador was kind of because of Ajahn Sumedho being American, so he met him and they talked a bit about Buddhism, so. Okay, so the ambassador's wife decides she'd come out to Wat Pa Pong in order to, to, uh, you know, show an interest in Buddhism. And I just went, oh, you've got to meet my my, t- my teacher, really, you know, a great master, he really knows everything, and he's realized Buddhist and so forth. So they go out to meet Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Chah's sitting in his, under his kuti or something, they bring this ambassador's wife to meet Ajahn Chah, Oh, fine, I'll sit down, you know, sit, gets a sit on the floor. Just a minute. And he goes off in a corner with his platoon and has a pee. Just <laughs> urinating his platoon. I just went, oh my God. <laughs> this is my great guru, you know. <laughs> right in front of the American ambassador's wife. He wasn't really trying to make a <laughs> a big thing about being a great idol either, you know, someone could idolise. Mm-hmm. And you so you can see any of the how one's mind does get uh, wound up about, you know, trying to make it work and make it keep going and make people happy and have a nice time and, you know, things be orderly and so forth or make sure you really hold it together or you look good or you're on form or, you know, you give good talks. Imagine Charles talks with, you know, really long rambling nothings. And he, you've got Andrew Samedo to have to give a talk in Lao, you know, which he could only just barely speak. 
and this was another big kind of thing you had to get through. They do this for all the monks had to often at the end of the vast they have to go you, you go around to different places for katinas and you get up and give your talk, you know, so one, even fairly junior monks, they sort of you have to get up onto the arsenal and kind of give some talk to the laity. And you know what to say, and if you're nervous, and you can go say something kind of about Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and practice, and then you know, half an hour you can get off, you know. And uh, so I, I just made it, got up there, and he, you know, okay, he figured something out, and he thought, okay, went on for half an hour. And he went to get down and Joe said, no, you know, st- yeah, stay, keep going, Samedo, keep going. <laughs> he struggled on for about no, half an hour, he didn't really have anything to say, actually. An hour had gone by, and he went, no, no, you stay there, Samedo, you keep, keep going. <laughs> so he's up there three hours, and everybody's getting up and leaving, <laughs> people falling asleep, talking to each other. <laughs> they keep going, Samedo. <laughs> get the point <laughs> you know there's <laughs> something to get through the sense of you know having to be good at anything even you know and being exposed in public as kind of inadequate or fumbling or not very wise and you know let work <laughs> with that one <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot a lot there which one can apply uh, make use of And then you see, what, what's the result, really? These, why do people do this? You know, why is this useful? Because it, it, in a way, it presents a very, as I say, very um, applicable. And if you, you're trying to witness, you know, where, where, you, where your stuff really starts working, where you, you know, where you, where you start to concoct a lot, concoct, build up a lot, where you get that's where you place it, that's where you put that discernment, that, that determination for release. You don't try to even stop it happening, you just kind of let it boil off. Um, the, you know, the complaining mind, or the uh, self-pity, or the doubt, you fine, stay with that, and just let it release, boil off. Uh, and then what's 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 left? Mm. Mm. And the said very simply, "This is the happiness of the Buddha." Is what's left. Mm. It's a happiness that's not dependent upon pleasure, firmness, understanding, samadhi. And it's not it's not dependent, and also it's something that's it's there because not because of what you've created, but because of the depth of letting go. So you might say it's a very fundamental, innate kind of happiness, rather than happiness that you've fashioned. It's almost the the real beauty of it is this this is the happiness that's actually possibly is there as an innate uh, presence if, if we can just cream off all the things that get conditioned in that stop us experiencing it. The things that we put there in order to experience happiness, to get it, to have it, you know, and yet actually make us tense, worried, narrow, infuriated, frustrated, you know, greedy, insensitive, so you just, you know, to let go of that in order to find a happiness that isn't about holding or making. And that that should be, one might say, you know, the, the basic ground of the mind, uh, you know, one might say the basic nature of mind <coughs> is, is a, a true revelation a release, a release that's worth working for.